0: Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, People die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer-husband and his TV-producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff... To Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
1: Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time or just relax to a good book, Relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Why do you seem so scared? All I wanted to do was play with you. Please come and play with me. I'm so lonely. You're not afraid of the dark,
0: are you? Don't be afraid. Come with me. I will show
1: you where I play hide and seek. Do you want to play hide and seek? You hide and I'll find you.
0: If you've never heard of the Colt family from Burroa, New South Wales, Australia, here are some basic facts. They lived on an isolated property in a rural area. They had little contact with outsiders. Even when the courts mandated that their children were required to attend school, their attendance was checkered by frequent and prolonged absences. In fact, it was only when social workers visited when the children would be forced into attending classes to receive remedial instruction, since they were so far behind the other children. They were also unprepared to deal with outsiders, whose lives were markedly different, with evidence obvious to the five senses of how they did not play by the rules of Australian society. For one thing, they lived in squalor. The colts were not equipped with showers, bathtubs, or running water for any means. They were not in the habit of bathing, so their hygiene, or lack thereof, was highly unpleasant for interlopers. They slept in tents and sheds. They lived in abject poverty. Their living arrangements consisted of two caravans, a garden shed and a larger shed, with two tents inside. The floor of caravan number one was caked with dirt, mud, garbage, and cigarette butts. The kitchen was filthy. The children's beds were squalid. A barbecue was used for heating. Its safety features were broken or rendered unusable for some other reason. Caravan number two was just as putrid and foul. With the absence of plumbing, a tub of water was used for hand-washing, though it didn't see a lot of action. The caseworkers returned with two camping toilets a camping shower, and a safety plan. Occasionally, the men would cut and sell firewood. Two of the men worked as council laborers. Sporadically, one of the matriarchs would roll into town in a four-wheel drive. Once she reached her destination, she disturbed locals with the visage of children who were gaunt with malnutrition and clad in filthy rags as clothing. Not only were the children of the family victims of neglect and morally corrupted by their own parents, but they were also products of incest and inbreeding going back generations. Some may argue that the children didn't know better, and they would be right. However, it is the adults who planted the seed of this family tree who knew right from wrong and were responsible for denying their descendants of the basic right of an unblemished pedigree. After all, they had fled three other Australian states when authorities learned of the depravity that occurred on the Colt compound. The family's matriarch, Betty Colt, was married to her biological brother, Their offspring copulated with one another and with their adult relations. After years of inbreeding, recessive traits began to appear. Physical aberrations and intellectual disabilities became common. Some were so mentally impaired they were incapable of speaking coherently. Impairments of hearing, sight, and dental issues were common. One child, a nine-year-old female, was described as having dysmorphic, or deformed, features. Others had such features to some degree. A doctor diagnosed some of the children with congenital defects like chronic kidney failure, acute glaucoma, and heart disease. They didn't know how to shower or use toilet paper. They never brushed their teeth. They ate with their hands. Their cooking equipment was covered with dirt. Some walked with a shuffling gait. They used bushes as latrines. Their refrigerator was filled with rotten vegetables. A kangaroo slept on one of the children's beds. They were covered in sores and infested with disease. It only got worse and worse as sisters had sex with brothers, uncles with nieces, and fathers with daughters. When the girls became pregnant from their incestuous relations, they would sometimes miscarry on the farm in a way that concealed it from doctors or other medical professionals. The cult women would tell authorities that their children were conceived by outsiders, such as transient laborers and travelers en route. Geneticists proved them wrong when they discovered, through testing, that the Colt clan's family tree was a nightmare of homozygosity. Each of the Colt children's parents were either siblings or parent and child. Six others had parents who were aunt and nephew, uncle and niece, half-siblings, or grandparent and grandchild. It all started in New Zealand in the first half of the 20th century, when June Colt was born to parents who were brother and sister. She married Tim, and in the 1970s, they moved to Australia. They had four daughters and two sons. Three of the daughters, Rhonda, Betty, and Martha, and son Charlie, were the next eldest members of the family. Betty had 13 children. She told authorities that the father was a man named Phil Walton, who was deceased He was known to the family as Tim. Genetic testing indicated that one of her children, Bobby, was either sired by her father or her brother, both of whom she had had sex with. Four more of Betty's children were conceived with a relative. Betty's eldest child, named Raylene, has a daughter named Kimberly. Raylene asserted strongly that Kimberly's father is a man named Sven from Sweden or Switzerland. A paternity test revealed that Kimberly's father was not only a local, but could have been her half-brother, an uncle, or a grandfather. Betty's second oldest child, Tammy, gave birth to three daughters. One of them died from a rare genetic disorder. Betty confessed that they were all fathered by her brother, Derek. Betty's younger sister Martha had five children. Four of them were conceived either with her father, Tim, or her brother. The only other possibility is another family member. The ten youngest children of Betty and Martha, including Raylene's daughter Kimberly, were the most active sexually. Betty's children Bobby, Billy, Brian, Dwayne, and Carmen all have parents who were closely related. The same is true of Martha's children, Albert, Jed, Ruth, and Nadia. When interviewed by child protection workers and psychologists, the children described a sexual free-for-all. Ruth and Nadia reported that Albert, Jed, and Carl showed them pornographic magazines and touched their breasts. They said Albert had sex with them. Kimberly was quoted as saying that she had oral sex with Duane while Carmen watched. Her mother, Raylene, was aware of the incident. Carmen said her father was her uncle, Charlie. Ruth said her father was Charlie. She mentioned having sex with her brothers, Jed and Carl. The sexual abuse is believed to have occurred over the span of 40 years. Rhonda was the only child who was proven to have been conceived with a father who was not a blood relation. She did not emerge unscathed from the family's paradigm of sexual abuse. At the age of nine, she was raped by Charlie Colt. The family's patriarch, Timothy Colt, who died in 2009, fathered children with one of his daughters and one of his granddaughters. Betty's son, Duane, revealed that Betty's father, Tim, began having sex with her when she was 12 years old. When he revealed as a ward of the state that he himself was inbred, he told those entrusted with his care that his father was Betty's father. He went on to say that he and his siblings were told to keep their lineage a secret from outsiders because Betty would go to jail. A female member of the fourth generation disclosed as an adult that she was sexually active with older and younger members of her family since she was 12 years old. At that point, she described the sex as abuse and revealed that one of the perpetrators was her grandfather, Tim. Though they were discouraged from disclosing the sexual activity to outsiders for fear of legal retribution, the sex was otherwise either encouraged or, at the very least, free from condemnation. According to two members of the fifth generation, Betty's younger siblings, Martha and Charlie, slept in the same bed every night at the Buroa compound. One of Martha's daughters told social workers that two of Betty's children, Derek and Tammy, were girlfriend and boyfriend. They moved to the New South Wales-Victorian border. They had three children. It was their daughter, Sally, who died of the rare genetic disorder. It is called Zellweger syndrome. Common symptoms are a thick, short neck and low-set ears. Sally had both. According to police, Betty had once told Bobby he was, quote, "...sexy and gorgeous." Nadia, at the age of six, when the case came to light, had had sex with her brothers and had been photographed for pornographic portraits by her mother and father. Nadia and Ruth told authorities that their brothers lined up to have sex with them as their parents were, quote, watching and laughing. But the moral decrepitude didn't end with incest. One of the children's hobbies, if you could call it that, was to mutilate the genitals of animals. Albert, Jed, Carl, Bobby, and Billy Admitted that they tortured animals including dogs and cats in some cases at the puppy or kitten stage Outsiders were unaware of all this until police and child protection officers showed up on the Colt property unannounced one day They were just as shocked by what they saw as all of Australia was when the story received significant media exposure The children couldn't help it if their parents and grandparents were human monsters. The Colt family first drew attention from the authorities in June 2010. They were tipped off by a report from a school one of the children was attending. The child was overheard saying to other children the following, My sister is pregnant and we don't know which of my brothers is the father. The sister in question was Tammy, mother of Sally. Over the next two years, seven risk-of-significant-harm reports were submitted. They detailed aspects of neglect, failure to seek medical attention, and chronic truancy by the school-age children and their parents. Their living conditions didn't even qualify as adequate. In June 2012, the family complied with a request from social services to improve their living conditions. A month later, police and social workers paid a visit to the compound. They concluded that if they remained on the property, they would be at risk of harm. All twelve children were removed. The parents fled, seeking asylum in other states. They were located six years later and were arrested. They were returned to New South Wales. Eight of the adult Colts were charged with perjury, child sexual abuse, indecent assault and incest. Some reside in some of Sydney's prisons. Some withdrew their applications for bail after other relatives were refused. The seven Colts remanded in custody were the grandchildren of a brother and sister who were the parents of the sibling's mother, June Colt. The following are some facts gathered from a court document issued by the Children's Court of New South Wales. The facts are disturbing. The graphic details contained therein are not for the faint-hearted. Listener discretion is strongly advised. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in,
1: we were blessed. My mom was amazing.
0: But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household.
1: Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Mm -hmm. No one's answering.
0: I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Decision date, the 13th of September, 2013. Jurisdiction, care and protection. Before, Judge Peter Johnstone, president of the Children's Court of New South Wales. Decision. There is no realistic possibility of restoration of any of the children. Parental responsibility for each child is allocated to the minister until the age of 18. Catchwords. Children. Care and protection. Children in need of care and protection. Realistic possibility of restoration. Allocation of parental responsibility. Legislation cited. Children and Young Persons, Care and Protection Act, 1998. Evidence Act, 1995. Category, Principal Judgment, Parties, Director General for the Department of Family and Community Services. Rhonda Colt, mother of Cindy. Betty Colt, mother of Bobby, Billy, Brian, Dwayne, and Carmen. Martha Colt, mother of Albert, Jed, Carl, Ruth, and Nadia. Raylene Colt, mother of Kimberly. Judgment. These proceedings concern 12 children removed by community services on the 18th of July, 2012, from the extended Colt family, a group comprised of some 40 adults and children living communally under inadequate conditions on a farm at Buroa near Yaz. The Children's Court subsequently made findings in respect of each child that he or she is in need of care and protection. The Director General seeks final orders for placement of the children in out-of-home care. It is contended that there is no realistic possibility of restoration of any child to any mother because restoration would pose unacceptable risk of harm to the child. The Director General submits that the only order facilitative of the children's safety, welfare, and well-being is an order allocating parental responsibility to the minister until they attain the age of 18. There are four mothers to the 12 children involved whose ages range from five to fifteen. Each of the four mothers seeks restoration to her of her child or children. It is now disputed that each of the children was neglected and that the circumstances in which they were living at the time of their removal were deficient, justifying their removal. What remains in issue are allegations of sexual abuse, incest and intergenerational sexual abuse in the wider Colt family group, both on the farm and historically. Central to the Director General's case is uncontradicted genetic evidence that demonstrates that 11 of the 12 children have parents who are either closely related to each other or who are related to each other. Disclosures made by some of the children since removal of sexual abuse and other inappropriate sexualized conduct involving some of the children. The Colt family structure... An understanding of the Colt family structure is critical to an appreciation of the issues in the proceedings. The family structure is depicted in the genogram, which is Exhibit K. The grandparents of the children involved in these proceedings were Timothy Colt, born in 1943, and June Colt, born probably in 1948, who were married in New Zealand in 1966. They had seven children, Rhonda, Betty, Cherry, Frank, Charlie, Paula, and Martha. The family moved to Australia and lived at various locations in South Australia, Victoria where June Colt died in 2001, South Australia again, Western Australia where Timothy Colt died in 2009, and for 2011 at the farm at Burrowa in New South Wales. Rhonda Colt, Betty Colt, and Martha Colt are three of the four mothers whose children were removed from the Buroa farm on the 18th of July, 2012. The fourth mother is Raylene Colt, one of Betty Colt's daughters. Rhonda Colt has had six children, Cliff, Tracy, Timothy, Penny, Alice, and Cindy. Her youngest child, Cindy, was removed from the Baroa farm on the 18th of July, 2012. She is now five, the youngest of the 12 children removed. Rhonda Colt contends that Cindy's father is Jerry Phelps, a man unrelated to the Colt family who she met in South Australia in 2006 when she worked on his farm-harvesting fruit. She further contends that the father of all her older children is Ron West, who died in 1992. Ron West was also unrelated to the Colt family. Of the 12 children removed, Cindy is the only one in respect of whom the genetic testing does not reveal that her parents were related. Betty Colt has had 13 children. Raylene, Tammy, Colin, Derek, Jane, Petra, Joe, Ben, who died at the age of two months, Bobby, Billy, Brian, Dwayne, and Carmen, the five youngest children, Bobby, Billy, Brian, Dwayne, and Carmen, were removed from the Burroa farm on the 18th of July 2012. Betty Colt contends that the father of all her children was Phil Walton, who died in 2007. She met Phil Walton, who was known within the Colt family as Tim, in about 1982, and lived with him in a de facto relationship, but who was often away for significant periods of time working in the wheat industry. Phil, Tim Walton, was unrelated to the Colt family. The genetic testing, however, discloses that Bobby's parents were closely related, Billy's parents were related, Bryant's parents were related, Dwayne's parents were related, and Carmen's parents were related. The eldest of Betty Colt's children is Raylene. Raylene Colt is the fourth mother in these proceedings. Her only child, Kimberly, was also removed from the Baroa farm on the 18th of July, 2012. Kimberly is now 13. Raylene Colt contends that Kimberly's father was a man called Sven, whose last name she does not recall. He was a backpacker from Sweden or Switzerland who she met on a date in Victoria. She saw him about three times, but when she told him she had become pregnant, when she was about eight months pregnant, he became abusive, hit her, and left saying he never wanted to see her again or the baby. As a result of the assault, she went into early labor, and Kimberly was born six weeks early. The genetic testing, however, discloses that Kimberly's parents were related. The next eldest of Betty Colt's children is Tammy. Tammy. Tammy Colt has had three children, Fiona, Anna, and Sally, who died at the age of two months. Tammy Colt's children have been removed from her care by the Department of Human Services, Victoria. Tammy is not a party to these proceedings, but I have admitted evidence of disclosures made by her to Victorian caseworkers concerning the Colt family. Martha Colt has had six children, Donna, who died at the age of two weeks, Albert, Jed, Carl, Ruth, and Nadia. Her five surviving children, Albert, Jed, Carl, Ruth, and Nadia, were removed from the Baroa farm on the 18th of July, 2012. Martha Colt contends that the fathers of each of her children were unrelated to the Colt family. She said that her relationship with each of the fathers was short term and she has not maintained contact with any of them. She met Donna's father in Maryborough, but cannot remember his name. The father of Albert was Martin Beach, who she met in Victoria. Jed's father was Sam Wilmont, whom she met in Victoria. Carl's father was Barry Heath, Who she also met in Victoria. She moved to South Australia in 2001 and lived there for five years. She cannot remember the name of Ruth's father. Nadia's father is Neville Chart, an American on holiday in Australia, who she met while working as a fruit picker. The genetic testing, however, discloses that Albert's parents were closely related, Jed's parents were closely related, Carl's parents were related, although not as closely as his siblings, Ruth's parents were closely related, and Nadia's parents were closely related. The mothers dispute the genetic evidence. They contend that it is simply wrong, and in the face of their evidence as to the paternity of the children and their denials of any incestuous relationship, the genetic evidence should be rejected by the court. Removal and placement of the children. The 12 children removed from their mothers from the farm at Boorawa on the 18th of July, 2012, were as follows. Rhonda Colt, the child Cindy, who is five Betty Colt, 46, the children being Bobby, 15, Billy, 14, Brian, 12, Dwayne, 9, and Carmen, 8. Martha Colt, the children being Albert, 15, Jed, 14, Carl, 12, Ruth, 9, and Nadia, 7. Raylene Colt, the child being Kimberly, 13, 13. Prior to removal of the children between the 24th of February 2010 and the 16th of July 2012, the Director General had received seven risk of significant harm reports in relation to the children. These reports related to neglect, failure to seek necessary medical attention, failure to ensure the children were attending school, and the failure to maintain a hygienic and appropriate domestic living environment. On the 6th of June, 2012, a visit was undertaken by caseworkers and police to the farm at Buroa. This home visit revealed that there were four main living quarters made up of two caravans, a garden shed, and a large shed that contained two tents. The first caravan was reported to be in a very dirty and hazardous state, with mud, dirt, cigarette butts, and rubbish on the caravan floor. Three children's beds were observed to be dirty and unmade. Cooking facilities were observed to be very dirty. A barbecue gas heater used for heating was deemed to be unsafe for the children sleeping in the caravan. The second caravan contained dirt on all surfaces, including food preparation areas, and on the stove. It contained at least two broken windows and presented an immediate safety risk to a child in its general condition. The large shed contained a basic kitchen with a stove, refrigerator, and table. The stove was very dirty. The refrigerator contained rotten vegetables and very few items. A freezer that contained multiple food items was considered adequate, but not optimal for healthy child development. A young kangaroo was sleeping on one of the children's beds. Martha reportedly slept in one tent with her daughters, while her son slept in the other tent. The condition of the tents was considered adequate, with no obvious signs of danger. Observations of the children were that they appeared to be dirty, wore dirty clothing, and were shy and unable to make eye contact. Their speech was difficult to understand, and they appeared to have very poor dental health and hygiene. There were no toilets, showers, or baths. The children had to go into the bush to go to the toilet. They hand-washed in a tub of water. Various other safety concerns were identified, including exposed electricity wires and large bags of rubbish adjacent to the entrance of a caravan. There were exposed chainsaws without protective covers in the garden shed. A safety plan was entered into under which Rhonda Colt and her family members were to take various steps to fix windows, cover exposed wiring, not use the dangerous stoves and gas heaters, and generally clean up. The family members were asked to remove the children from the premises while this was done. The next day, caseworkers returned with two camping toilets and a camping shower. A follow-up visit was undertaken by caseworkers on the 8th of June 2012, when it was observed that there had been a significant cleanup and other improvements in conditions. However, at their further visits on the 6th of July and 17th of July 2012, in follow-up casework, the Director General formed the view that the children would continue to be at risk of harm if they remained at the farm, and that they were in need of care and protection. Accordingly, the children were removed on the 18th of July, 2012. Other adult Colt family members present on the day of removal included Charlie Colt, Cliff Colt, Jane Colt, and Petra Colt. The children were placed into temporary out-of-home care, and subsequently into longer-term placements. Bobby, Billy, Jed, and Carl were placed together... Albert, Brian, and Dwayne were initially placed together, but Albert was subsequently put into a separate placement on his own due to his behaviors. Kimberly, Carmen, and Cindy were placed together with foster carers. Ruth and Nadia were placed together with foster carers. Over the period subsequent to their removal, all of the children presented as neglected in significant ways. Most of them were discovered to be far behind age peers in terms of educational development and were functioning well below their chronological age. Their basic schooling needs had been neglected, some having had no formal schooling, and others only having started school recently at an older age than that of peer age groups. Some of the children were developmentally delayed, others were cognitively impaired. Several of them were unable to speak intelligibly, particularly Albert, Jed, Kimberly, Carl, Ruth, Carmen, and Nadia. The medical and dental needs of most of the children had been badly ignored. Their immunization had either not occurred, had never been followed up following birth, or was not up to date. The majority of the children required significant dental attention. Some required medical attention. Some were reported as being unable to use a toothbrush, wash their hair, use toilet paper, or bathe themselves, or to engage in basic hygiene tasks. Bobby Colt, 15, Betty Colt's son. His speech was not understandable. He needed encouragement with respect to personal hygiene. He had fungal infections on his toenails. He had a walking impairment. He had a severe psoriasis of the scalp. He needed urgent dental work. He was reported to be soiling himself and wetting his bed. He had limited reading skills. He was assessed as operating at kindergarten level. Billy Colt, 14, Betty Colt's son, was underweight and there were growth concerns. He had a skin condition. He had fungal infections in his toenails. He needed urgent dental work. He had ophthalmological problems and mild hearing loss. His speech was not understandable. He had a moderate intellectual disability with poor spelling, reading, verbal, and numeracy skills. Jed Colt, 14, Martha Colt's son, presented with a bacterial infection on the soles of his feet. He had severe bilateral hearing impairment. He needed encouragement in respect of personal hygiene. He had a tongue infection and fungal infections on his toes. He needed urgent dental work. He was reported to be wetting his bed. His speech was not understandable. He presented as cognitively impaired. He had limited reading skills. Kimberly Colt, 13, Raylene Colt's daughter. Was initially abusive to caseworkers, having threatened one caseworker that she was going to cut her fingers off. She also said things like, You wait till Charlie finds out. Charlie will come and get us. She was underweight, unable to clean her teeth, use toilet paper, or comb her hair. She used her fingers to eat. She required urgent podiatry attention and was observed to have fungal infections around her toenails. She had significant dental problems, including cavities requiring urgent attention and generalized marginal gingivitis. She was also reported as having optometry, hearing, and speech issues. She appeared unable to read or write. Her school counselor reported her as having a moderate intellectual disability. Her overall cognitive functioning was extremely low. Brian Colt, 12, Betty Colt's son had various fungal infections and gum disease. He did not understand showering. He had extensively decayed teeth, requiring multiple extractions and restorative work. He had borderline normal hearing with mild, low-frequency hearing loss. His eyes were misaligned, and he was found to require glasses. He was working at a year three level, though he should have been in year six. When he first presented at school, he could not read or write, count, or recognize numbers. He continued to display poor speech, low reasoning capacity, poor literacy, and mathematical skills, and low-range processing and working memory. His cognitive capacity was in the extremely low range of intelligence, and he demonstrated considerable academic delay. Carl Colt, 12, Martha Colt's son, was very thin and was underweight. His speech was not understandable, and he presented with mild hearing impairment. He needed encouragement in respect of personal hygiene. He had fungal infections on his toenails. He walked in a shuffling fashion. He had a loud breathing at night and appeared to have tonsil and adenoid issues. He needed urgent dental work, he had limited reading skills, and presented as experiencing cognitive impairment. In episodes on 8 and the 11th of August 2012, he threatened to stab staff with pencils and to cut the throats of staff. Ruth Colt, age 9, Martha Colt's daughter, upon removal was chronically underweight and presented as neglected and malnourished. Her toenails were in a poor state, and she required urgent podiatry attention. She was unable to bathe or dry herself. She did not know how to use a toilet, or what toilet paper was. Her features were dysmorphic, and she had a misalignment of her upper front incisor teeth. She had significant dental cavities, and required urgent dental attention. Her speech was fragmented and stunted, and she appeared to have a hearing deficit, she could not read or write. Her cognitive ability was in the extremely low range. Dwayne Colt, age nine, Betty Colt's son, had gum disease and extensively decayed teeth, requiring multiple extractions and restorative work. When he first presented at school, he could not read or write, count, or recognize numbers. He had effectively missed five years of formal schooling. Carmen Colt, aged eight, Betty Colt's daughter, was extremely underweight. She had, quote, shocking dental cavities and was unable to clean her teeth. She required podiatry treatment. She did not know what toilet paper was used for. She had eye problems. She could not read and had severely delayed language development and hearing problems. Nadia Colt, age 7, Martha Colt's daughter, upon removal was significantly underweight and presented as neglected and malnourished. Her feet were unclean and black. She was unable to bathe or dry herself including an inability to wash her hands, and her hygiene skills were described as primitive. She did not know how to use a toilet or what toilet paper was. She had not seen a toothbrush before. Her teeth were decayed. She had speech delay requiring therapy, and she was delayed educationally. Her visual comprehension index was in the extremely low range. Cindy Colt, Rhonda Colt's daughter, age five, was medically examined on the day of her removal. She had a viral cold, but her health and hygiene were otherwise observed to be good, and her clothes were clean. She was suffering from an ear infection, although her mother had taken her to hospital two weeks prior to her removal to have this problem treated. She was unable to brush her teeth properly, though it is to be noted she was only four at the time. She could not bathe or dress herself, but unlike other children, was reportedly capable of using toilet paper. But she preferred to eat with her fingers. She also required dental treatment, although it was submitted that her needs in this regard may not have been readily apparent to a lay observer, given the apparent absence of complaints of pain. Unlike the other children, Cindy presented as a well-spoken, polite, bright, intelligent girl whose development was normal for her age. As previously noted, of all the children, the genetic testing demonstrated that her parents were not related. The Disclosures by Some Children and Reports of Sexualized Behavior Subsequent to their removal, some of the children made concerning disclosures exhibited sexualized behavior, or were reported to have engaged in inappropriate sexual conduct. The following are some examples of reports of such disclosures and conduct. Nadia told her temporary carers that her father was her maternal uncle, Charlie Colt. Albert, Jed, and Carl disclosed to their carers that they used to torture animals at the farm, including puppies and cats. They reported mutilating the genitals of animals. Bobby and Billy made similar disclosures to their carers. A psychologist reported that Kimberly told her during assessment that she had the same father as her mother, Raylene Colt, and her grandmother, Betty Colt. Ruth told a psychologist that she lived with, quote, two mums and two dads, but her number one mom died because she was sick. Kimberly is reported to have said that she had, quote, "...sucked Duane" and that Carmen had watched her suck Duane. Her mother, Raylene Colt, was made aware of the incident, but did nothing about it. Carmen is reported to have said that her father was her maternal uncle, Charlie Colt. A placement report disclosed that Cindy was masturbating on the toilet. Duane and Brian tied up their carer's 18-year-old granddaughter with ribbons, Nadia told caseworkers that her father was her uncle, Charlie Colt, and that he was also the father of her brother and sister. Nadia also told the caseworkers she had watched Charlie Colt and her mother, Martha, having sex in the tent. During contact, Brian placed his hand on Carmen's knee a number of times and moved it up her thigh. Ruth and Nadia disclosed to their carers that Albert, Jed, and Carl used to show them books with pictures of naked men and women, that they used to touch their breasts, and that Albert used to lick their vaginas and have sex with them. Carmen is reported to have said that she had had sex with family members, that Brian, Dwayne, and Billy once took her and Kimberly to the bush, tied them to a tree, and took their clothes off, and that she had watched Dwayne and Cindy have sex. Nadia told her carers that her mother and father took photos of her vagina. Whilst on holidays, Carmen and a boy went missing but were found in a shower. The boy is reported to have said, Carmen keeps asking me for sex, and had pulled her pants down before trying to pull his pants down. In a jerk interview on November 15, 2012, Ruth said that her father's name was Charlie, that Albert had touched her bottom, that her brothers had had sex with her and that Martha Colt knew that Albert had licked her vagina and had had sex with her using his penis more than once. She later told Martha Colt after it happened. Jed and Carl had also done similar things to her. In a jerk interview on November 15, 2012, Nadia said that Albert had touched her vagina, had licked her vagina, and had inserted his penis into her vagina and anus on a number of occasions. Jed had also licked her vagina and tried to insert his penis in her anus. She had told Martha Colt and Charlie Colt. Ruth and Nadia told their carers that their father used to play with Nadia's anus and used to put a stick in it and his penis in a further jared interview on november 23rd 2012 ruth said albert carl jed duane and brian had all touched her vagina that duane had also touched nadia's vagina and carmen's vagina and that albert carl jed and brian had touched her anus In a further jerked interview on November 23rd, 2012, Natty said her brothers had touched her vagina and had touched her anus with their penises, that Charlie Colt had inserted sticks into her vagina, and that Charlie Colt and Martha Colt slept together in a bed each night. Jed told his carers that he used to open up Ruth's bum and lick her inside that he had watched Albert do the same, and that Carl had watched. Carl told a worker at St. Saviors that he had watched Albert open up Nadia's legs and try and lick and kiss her. Jed and Carl told their carers that they had sexually penetrated Ruth and Nadia. The carers of Kimberly and Carmen observed Kimberly place her hand inside Carmen's skirt. They reported that Carmen had told them that she had been touching Kimberly's quote, girl, that is her vagina, and that Kimberly said she had touched Carmen's vagina. Kimberly also told the carers that the boys did that to her and that Billy and Bobby did it to all the girls. In a jerk interview on December 7th, 2012, Kimberly said that while living on the farm, the boys had touched her vagina and that her mother, Raylene Colt, was aware of this. She had also been tied to a tree. In a jerked interview on December 7th, 2012, Carmen said that while living on the farm, Dwayne and Brian had tied Kimberly to a tree, that Dwayne had been having sex with her and Cindy in the cubby house, that Billy had had sex with her, and that Dwayne, Bobby, and Billy had touched her vagina with their penises lots of times. Dwayne told his carers that he watched his brothers and cousins masturbate using, quote, rudy books, and that he had had sex with an eight-year-old girl in the toilets behind the primary school, and that the girl had masturbated him, and that Brian had had sex with a different girl. In an interview with the Independent Clinician on December 31st, 2012, Nadia said she did not like what her brothers did to her, including touching her chest and bottom and putting a stick in her, quote, both sides, front and back. She told her mother, Martha Colt. Charlie Colt smacked the boys with a big belt. In an interview with the independent clinician, on January 11, 2013, Kimberly said she had had sex with her uncles, Joe, Bobby, and Dwayne, including vaginal intercourse with Dwayne. She had performed fellatio on Bobby and Duane. Kimberly said she had told her mother, Raylene Colt, about these incidents. In a jerked interview on January 17, 2013, Jed said that Charlie and Martha Colt shared a bed together. Kimberly is reported to have said that Dwayne and Brian had put their penises in her mouth lots of times, that she had told her mother Raylene about this, that Dwayne had put his penis in her vagina and into her anus, and that her cousin Joe had also had sex with her on one occasion. Brian told a mandatory reporter that he knew Carmen had sucked Dwayne off, as he put it. In a further jerked interview on January 23rd, 2013, Ruth said that Charlie and Martha Colt used to share a bed together at the farm and that Derek Colt had been Tammy Colt's boyfriend. In a further jerked interview on January 29, 2013, Nadia said that Charlie and Martha Colt used to share a bed together at the farm and that her father's name is Charlie. In a further Jert interview on February 6, 2013, Kimberly said that Joe Colt had had sex with her by inserting his penis into her vagina. Cindy's carers reported that she was recently found masturbating on the toilet. It was also reported that Cindy had been observed masturbating in the shower. She once told the carers that Duane had showed her how to do that. She often tried to kiss the male carer on the lips, and was defiant when told this was inappropriate. Duane told his carers that he and his siblings were told never to tell anyone that his father was, in fact, Betty Colt's father, as Betty Colt would go to jail because her father had started having sex with her when she was 12. The genetic evidence... On the 28th of September, 2012, the Children's Court at Orange made orders for genetic testing in relation to the children. A report on the genetic testing dated 29th of July, 2013, was prepared by Dr. Susan Marks, from the Children Protection Unit at the Children's Hospital at Westmead, which is relied upon by the Director General. Dr. Marks was also cross-examined before me. The genetic evidence was based on buccal swabs obtained by Dr. Marks from each child on the 5th of June 2013 at the Child Protection Unit at CHW, which she personally delivered to the cytogenetics lab. She subsequently received the results of the cytogenetic testing on the 25th of July 2013. Her report of the 29th of July 2013 interprets those results. In Dr. Mark's opinion, the cytogenetic testing demonstrated that five of the Colt children removed on the 18th of July 2012 have parents who are closely related and another five have parents who are related. Cytogenetics is the study of inheritance in relation to the structure and function of chromosomes. Homozygosity means there are identical gene patterns from both parents in a child. Where results of cytogenetic testing show that the genomic homozygosity is sufficiently excessive, the finding may trigger a suspicion for parental consanguinity, or incest. The findings revealed, as stated earlier, that only Rhonda's pedigree presented as the product of heterozygosity. All others were determined that they were the product of an incestuous coupling. Dr. Anne Turner, a clinical geneticist and head of the Department of Medical Genetics, New South Wales Health, supports the conclusions of Dr. Marks in her report on the Colt children in these proceedings. Dr. Turner, whose qualifications in genetics were not challenged, was available in court for cross-examination, but none of the other parties required her to give evidence. Her opinions are, therefore, unchallenged. The Evidence of the Independent Clinician. The Independent Children's Court Clinic psychologist appointed to assist and advise the court in relation to these children is Ms. Lindy Pfeiffer. Ms. Pfeiffer, a psychologist, is currently a private practitioner specializing in the forensic reporting of child, adolescence, and trauma. She is a registered counselor with victims of crime and an authorized children's court clinic clinician. Prior to entering into private practice in 2005, she specialized for over 20 years within government and non-government agencies in working with children, adolescents, and their families who have experienced trauma. Her clinical experience within her private practice over the past seven years has included forensic and clinical assessments and treatment of children who are victims or offenders of sexual assault. This includes treatment of children who are demonstrating challenging and sexualized behaviors and referred to her by Family and Community Services, the New South Wales Child Abuse Review Team or CART and other government and non-government agencies. Her clinical practice also includes the assessment and treatment of adolescents and adults who have experienced trauma, alcohol, and other drug use, and or participated in criminal behavior. There are over 200 pages of material in her assessment reports and I do not propose to summarize them in these reasons. It will be sufficient at this stage to record that in the assessment of the independent clinician based on the aggregated information considered by her that the parenting capacity of each of the four mothers is inadequate for them to reassume parental responsibility for any of these children. Her assessment of each mother in this regard remained unvaried following her cross-examination. The independent clinician made a series of recommendations in relation to each mother and her child or children. In respect of Betty Colt and her children, the clinician recommended parental responsibility for the children be afforded to the minister until they are 18 years old. Even though restoration is not favored, Betty should be offered every opportunity to address personal issues which currently preclude restoration. That Betty Colt be referred to an agency who is able to provide her with information and strategies to assist her to deal with her children's sexual assault. That Betty Colt be referred to an agency who will provide her counseling in family systems therapy. That regular supervised contact on a monthly basis be negotiated between the mother, Betty Colt, and the children. That the subject children remain in their current placements until the outcome of the court is determined. That supervision by family and community services continues as required by legislation that the children be assessed for possible developmental and behavioral support services by aging, disability, and home care services, that a pediatrician reviews and monitors the children's service access to address their physical health needs, and that their specific dental, language, hearing, occupational therapy, and speech needs be specifically assessed and offered remediation, The children are also likely to benefit from specific educational support responsive to the needs assessed above in order to give them a chance to achieve towards their potential. They are likely to need support to continue school attendance. That Bobby, Billy, and Brian be referred to an agency such as New Street Adolescent Service Program or ADHC's specific program to address their problem-sexualized behavior that presents a risk to other people. That Dwayne and Carmen be referred to an agency that specializes in the treatment of problem-sexualized behavior. That the placement assessment and risk management planning for Bobby, Billy, Brian, and Duane focus on containing and protecting the children, other children, and the foster parents in relation to their behavior problems. That Carmen be afforded the opportunity to address her own trauma history, including her experience of sexual assault. In respect of Martha Colt and her children, the clinician recommended parental responsibility for the children is afforded to the minister until they are 18 years old. Even though restoration is not favored, Martha should be offered every opportunity to address personal issues which currently preclude restoration. That Martha Colt be referred to an agency who is able to provide her with information and strategies to assist her to deal with their children's sexual assault. That Martha Colt be referred to an agency who will provide her counseling in family systems therapy. That contact between Albert, Jed, and Carl and their mother Martha Colt be negotiated within the context of this report. That contact between Nadia and Ruth and their mother Martha Colt continue to be suspended until the children's treating therapists agree that the children have sufficiently progressed in their treatment to manage their trauma symptomatology, that the subject children remain in their current placements until the outcome of the court is determined, that supervision by family and community services continues as required by legislation that Jed, Carl, Nadia, and Ruth be specifically referred to aging, disability, and home care in order to access disability support, training, and education services, that a pediatrician reviews and monitors the children's service access to address their physical health needs, and that their specific dental, language, hearing, occupational therapy needs be specifically assessed and offered remediation. The children are also likely to benefit from specific educational support, responsive to the needs assessed above, in order to give them a chance to achieve their potential. They are likely to need support to continue school attendance. That Albert, Jed, and Carl be referred to an agency such as New Street Adolescent Service Program or ADHC's specific program to address their problem sexualized behavior that presents a risk to other people that Nadia and Ruth continue with their current treatment, that the placement assessment and risk management planning for Albert, Jed, and Carl focus on containing and protecting the children, other children, and the foster parents in relation to their behavior problems. In respect of Raylene Colt and Kimberly, the clinician recommended parental responsibility for Kimberly is afforded to the minister until she is 18 years old. Even though restoration is not favored, Raylene should be offered every opportunity to address personal issues which currently preclude restoration. That regular supervised contact on a monthly basis be negotiated between the mother, Raylene Colt, and the child, Kimberly Colt. That the subject child remains in her current placement until the outcome of the court is determined. That supervision by family and community services continues as required by legislation. It is further recommended that Kimberly be specifically referred to aging, disability, and home care in order to access disability support, training, and education services. That Kimberly be referred to an agency such as New Street Adolescent Service Program, which specializes in the treatment of juvenile sex offenders. That an actuarial risk assessment be conducted to ascertain Kimberly's risk of reoffending and to determine suitable placement in out-of-home care. That Kimberly has no future contact with her uncles, Bobby, Billy, Brian, and Dwayne. That Kimberly be afforded the opportunity to address her own trauma history, including her experience of sexual assault. In respect of Rhonda Colt and Cindy, the clinician recommended parental responsibility for Cindy Colt is afforded to the minister until she is 18 years old. Even though restoration is not favored, Rhonda Colt should be offered every opportunity to address issues which currently preclude restoration. That Rhonda Colt be referred to an agency who is able to provide her with information and strategies to assist her to deal with her daughter's sexual assault and an agency who will provide for her counseling and family systems therapy. That regular supervised contact but continue between the mother Rhonda Colt and her daughter Cindy as per current arrangements that the subject child remains in her current placement until the outcome of the court is determined that in the short term a risk assessment and a safety plan be developed for Cindy to remain in the same placement as her second cousin Kimberly Colt that Cindy is closely supervised whenever she is in the company of her second cousin Kimberly Colt that there be no contact between Cindy and her cousins, Bobby, Billy, Brian, and Dwayne Colt. Further pediatric assessment to investigate whether there is a possible neurological basis to Cindy's nighttime behaviors observed in her current placement, as previously described in this report. That Cindy is referred to as a matter of urgency, health services, such as Link's House, with the aim of addressing her previous sexual assault and subsequent sexualized behaviors. That Cindy be provided with age-appropriate counseling to reduce the severity of her grief symptomology, improve her adaptive functioning that Cindy B provided with age appropriate counseling that Cindy B provided with age appropriate counseling to reduce the severity of her grief symptomatology improve her adaptive functioning and restoration and or promotion of her normal developmental progress that supervision by family and community services continues as required by legislation the legal context for the proceedings Before proceeding to discuss the respective positions of the parties in their submissions, it is important that these proceedings be understood in their proper legal context. The proceedings are governed by the Children and Young Persons Care and Protection Act of 1998. I will refer to the Act in short form as the Care Act 1998. As its full title suggests, the Care Act 1998 is concerned with the care and protection of children and young persons. The Submissions for the Director General. The Director General submitted that the totality of the evidence establishes that there is no realistic possibility of restoration of the children and that the only order facilitative of their safety, welfare, and well-being is an order allocating parental responsibility for the children to the minister until they attain the age of 18. The parenting of each mother was inadequate. It was acknowledged that the mothers have all appropriately conceded that the care environment in which the children were placed was inappropriate. Additionally, the mothers have all partaken in parenting courses in an endeavor to rectify deficiencies in their parenting. The Director General noted that these acknowledgments and efforts are commendable, but each of the mothers continues to exhibit a lack of insight, both into the history of neglect and into the intergenerational incest and intrafamilial sexual abuse, which would place each of the children at unacceptable risk of harm if restoration were to occur. It was submitted that the evidence before the court, including the genetic testing results, the disclosures by the children of sexual abuse, and the disclosures by the children as to the identity of their fathers, points inescapably to intergenerational incestuous relationships and intrafamilial sexual abuse in the colt family mr Talde gave evidence that acknowledgement by the mothers of the incidents and culture of intergenerational incest and intrafamilial sexual abuse in the colt family was a condition precedent to the commencement of therapy to deal with their own traumatic experiences and help them understand and empathize with the experiences of their children. That acknowledgement was absent in the case of each mother, such that the healing process has not yet even commenced. The children have engaged in sexualized behaviors and sexually abusive behaviors after being assumed into care. The evidence of Mr. Talladay and the clinician is that such behaviors do not arise in a vacuum. They are likely to be the product of prior sexual abuse. Such behaviors are thus indicative of the children having previously been either instigators of such abuse or victims of such abuse. The interdependence between the sisters and the necessity for them to extricate themselves from the wider Colt family is a prerequisite to the commencement of any progress towards developing a capacity to provide a safe environment for their children. The clinician noted that it was a condition precedent to the children, including Cindy, being restored to the care of their mothers, that each of the mothers acknowledges the sexual abuse and intergenerational incestuous relationships in the Colt family and undertake appropriate counseling in respect to this. Until that occurs, they cannot engage effectively in the counseling and therapy necessary to confront and deal with their own complex trauma. In respect of Cindy, The Director General suggested that it is not disputed by Rhonda Colt that Cindy was not afforded an adequate level of care when Cindy was in her care. Rhonda Colt conceded, for instance, that Cindy's dental hygiene was subpar. She sought to explain this away by stating that she acquiesced to Cindy's sweet tooth. It was further submitted that it is incontrovertible that Cindy was raised in an isolated and secluded environment, cut off from wider society. Rhonda Colt never enrolled Cindy at preschool, and her engagement in extrafamilial activities appears to have been minimal. Subjecting Cindy to a secluded and antisocial existence was unacceptable. Rhonda Colt sought to traverse or downplay this in her affidavit, calling into question whether she truly believes that the lifestyle she subjected Cindy to at the Bureau of Property was unacceptable. Rhonda Colt has continued to deny intergenerational incest in the Colt family. Without the acknowledgement of the intergenerational incest and intrafamilial sexual abuse by Rhonda, It is unlikely that Cindy would have a protective ally if restoration occurs. Rhonda requires therapy to help her understand and empathize with the experiences of Cindy. The clinician gave evidence that counseling and therapy could take up to two years past Rhonda acknowledging such matters, and that restoration should not occur unless and until such counseling and therapy takes place. In respect of Kimberly, the Director General submits that her living skills were also substandard. Since coming to care, she has learned how to wash her hair, use a knife and fork, and wash herself. This evidences that her previous lack of living skills were the result of the substandard care afforded to her by her mother, not the result of any cognitive impairments she may experience. This evidences that whilst in the care of Raylene Colt, Kimberly was subjected to chronic neglect. Raylene Colt initially had no insight into these factors, informing community services that Kimberly's health was fine will send her care. Raylene Colt only enrolled Kimberly in school when she was about 10 years old and only after intervention by community services in 2010. Raylene Colt now concedes that the environment at the Barola property was not appropriate for Kimberly. She also acknowledges that she took far too long to take Kimberly to the dentist. Raylene Colt appears to have now acknowledged these matters and taken some steps to address deficits in her parenting. However, she is still in denial about the extent of neglect Kimberly was subjected to Wilson or Care. It is submitted that her evidence evinces a prioritization of an isolated lifestyle over the needs of Kimberly. This prioritization has had a deleterious impact on Kimberly, who is a high-needs child with significant behavioral difficulties, which are largely attributable to the care environment she endured, whilst parented by Raylene Colt. Raylene Colt is unable to afford her such care. Kimberly has disclosed being both a victim and instigator of sexual abuse, Wilson Raylene Colt's care. She has disclosed being the victim of abuse at the hands of her uncles. Importantly, she has reported disclosing this abuse to Raylene Colt. She has also been the instigator of sexual abuse after being assumed into care, masturbating Carmen. Raylene Colt, however, denies all knowledge of Kimberly being either an instigator or victim of sexual abuse, whilst in her care. She also denies that Kimberly ever disclosed to her that she was sexually abused by her uncles and cousins. Under cross-examination, she said that she did not believe the disclosures of sexual abuse made by Kimberly or any other of the Colt children. It was submitted by the Director General that the court will treat these denials and Raylene Colt's statements about Kimberly being a liar with a great deal of circumspection. To quote the Director General, that Raylene would be completely oblivious to such activities whilst living in an isolated and secluded property defies belief. Raylene Colt also denied the allegations of incest and intrafamilial sexual abuse in the wider Colt family. It was submitted that her continued denials demonstrate that she has a limited capacity to provide appropriate care and protection for Kimberly. Unless and until Raylene acknowledges issues of intergenerational incest and intrafamilial sexual abuse, her capacity to engage in the therapeutic process will be impaired. Raylene Colt's failure to acknowledge the intergenerational nature of the incestuous relationships in the Colt family determines that she cannot address her own traumatic history and engage in a therapeutic process to enable her to understand how such experiences have impacted on her and Kimberly. In these circumstances it was submitted Kimberly would be placed at an unacceptable risk of harm if restored to Raylene Colt's care. Raylene Colt, who believes her daughter is a liar and is concocting stories about sexual abuse, is unlikely to be a protective ally for Kimberly. Turning to the children of Martha Colt. The Director General submitted that when Albert, Jed, Carl, Ruth, and Nadia were assumed into care, they presented with features indicative of chronic neglect. Furthermore, they had only attended school for the very first time for a period of about two weeks after community services had first attended the Barroa property in early June 2012. As a result, they were all developmentally delayed to a significant extent since martha colt's children were assumed into care they have markedly increased their ability to perform daily tasks particularly ruth and nadia the clinician concluded that martha colt was unable to meet her children's psychosocial physical and education needs and that she appeared unable to understand what constituted neglect it was submitted that martha colt's parenting deficits are such that she is incapable of affording her children an adequate standard of care. This of itself is sufficient to determine that there is no realistic possibility of her children being restored to her care. There are also disclosures of sexual abuse involving Martha Colt's children, including abuse of Ruth and Nadia, by their brothers. She denied that she knew this was occurring, and said that if any abuse involving children had occurred at the farm, Charlie Colt did not participate in it. Martha Colt also disputes the findings of the genetic testing, deposing that all her children were fathered by men who were not related to her. These assertions cannot sit with the uncontroverted evidence of Dr. Marks and ought to be rejected. Her failure to acknowledge the intergenerational nature of the incestuous relationships in the Colt family determines that she cannot address her own traumatic history. Martha's denials of the possibility of such activity means that she is unable to engage in a therapeutic process to obtain an understanding of how such experiences have impacted on her and her children and show that she is unable to provide an appropriate, empathic response to her children's experiences of sexual abuse and to act as a protective ally for them. In these circumstances, it was submitted that children would be placed at an unacceptable risk of harm if restored to Martha Colt's care. Betty Colt's children, Bobby, Billy, Brian, Dwayne, and Carmen, also exhibited features indicative of neglect when they were taken into care. They were lacking basic life skills, such as the ability to shower and clean their teeth voluntarily. Since coming into care, their skills in these facets have increased markedly. As noted by the clinician, Betty Colt had not responded to any of her children's health needs, nor had she maintained a clean and adequate domestic environment. She had failed to ensure her children had necessary dental work. Additionally, she had not investigated any treatment of the eye problems her children experienced. Additionally, the children had only had about two years of formal schooling, with Betty Colt enrolling them in school in 2010 after intervention by police and community services. This appears to explain their developmental delay and deficits in intellectual functioning. The clinician noted that it was concerning that Betty Colt had little awareness of her children's educational needs and had exhibited no regret that their needs were not being met, Wilson or Care. Betty Colt now appears to accept that her parenting of the children was substandard. However, the Director General submitted such a concession came almost 13 months after the children were assumed into care. Given the history of chronic neglect and gross deficiencies in her parenting, her parenting capacity is still highly questionable. Furthermore, the clinician opined that Betty Colt's ability to function as an effective parent was impaired by her enmeshment in a dysfunctional intrafamilial structure. She appears to still be enmeshed in her family. There is no material before the court that she is willing to disentangle herself from her family. This factor points to her capacity to rectify her parenting issues being most questionable. In all the circumstances it was submitted, her parenting capacity is still open to question. The Director General next pointed to the disclosures by and about Betty's children since removal and noted that in spite of these disclosures, Betty Colt has denied all knowledge of such sexual abuse. She denied witnessing it or being told about it and denied the possibility that it may have occurred. He submitted that in circumstances where all the children were living on an isolated and secluded property, her denial of any knowledge of sexual misconduct on the part of the children or any other of the cult children is not credible. Furthermore, it was submitted, The court has before it uncontroverted evidence that all of Betty's children are the product of an incestuous relationship. In spite of this uncontested scientific evidence, Betty Colt denied that she was related to her children's father, stating that their father was a man named Phil Walton. She has, it was suggested, conveniently stated Phil was also known as Tim, in an apparent attempt to explain disclosures by her children that their father was named Tim, being the name of Betty's father. The Director General noted that the percentage figures derived by Dr. Marks in the genetic testing are suggestive of at least some of Betty's children being the product of, amongst other things, a father-daughter relationship. This is consistent with the children's disclosures that their father's name is Tim. Additionally, Betty Colt's solicitor tendered a letter detailing that she had been informed in about 1997 that Betty, Rhonda, and Martha Colt's maternal grandparents were brother and sister, following tissue typing testing being undertaken on June to assess whether one of June's kidneys could be suitable for Rhonda's daughter, Alice. It is noteworthy that the issue of intergenerational incestuous relationships within the extended Cole family has been a live issue for the majority of these proceedings, with the court making orders on the 28th of September 2012 that community services arrange genetic testing of the children, following receipt of Dr. Turner's report that Sally was a product of an incestuous relationship and disclosures by children that their fathers were related to their mothers. Betty Colt's disclosure was made at the 11th hour after Dr. Mark's report had been made available to the parties. She acknowledged via her solicitor that she had not reported this previously. The Director General questions why she had kept this information to herself until this stage particularly in a litigious context where the issue of incest, quote, had been swirling around for many months. The disclosure by Betty Colt is highly convenient, he said. It appeared to be a move motivated by need to discredit or explain the genetic testing results. It backfired. Dr. Marks opined that it made no difference to her conclusions as the tests conducted in respect to the SMP chromosome microarray were to determine whether the children's parents were closely related, not whether the parents of one of the parents were closely related. The Director General submitted further that assuming Betty Colt's disclosure is correct, it illustrates that incestuous activity had been occurring in the Colt family for several generations. It demonstrates that at least Rhonda Colt and Betty Colt were aware of this but had failed to disclose it in their affidavits. Betty Colt's persistent unequivocal denials illustrate, according to the evidence of Mr. Tolliday and the clinician, that she is incapable of addressing her own traumatic history. Her failure to acknowledge the intergenerational nature of the incestuous relationships in the Colt family determines that she cannot engage in a therapeutic process to enable her to understand how such experiences have impacted on her and her children. This entails that she will be unable to provide an appropriate empathic response to her children's experiences of sexual abuse and act as a protective ally for them. In these circumstances, it was submitted, the children would be placed at an unacceptable risk of harm if restored to Betty Colt's care. The children disclosed other incidents and patterns of sexual abuse, which were noted during the trial. In the case worker's affidavit, of the 8th of February, 2013. From paragraph 10 through to paragraph 23, a number of Kimberly's disclosures of sexual abuse are outlined. She makes a number of disclosures to the sexual health educator at Shell Harbor Hospital on or about the 11th of September, 2012, involving her performing oral sex on Dwayne. On the 28th of January, 2013, she made a number of disclosures about her brothers, Bobby and Dwayne, putting, quote, "...their dicks in my mouth. Last year they did it lots of times." She also concerningly reports that she told her mother, Raylene, and that Raylene told her off at the time, saying it was wrong and her fault. Kimberly also indicated in that same disclosure that Dwayne also, quote, "...put his dick into my girl hole. He was too hard. He played with me and made me sore both in my bottom and in my special place." my girl whole there's also the incident disclosed on the 7th of December 2012 when Kimberly engaged in sexualized behavior with Carmen in the JERT interview of the 7th of December 2012 Kimberly also makes similar disclosures of sexual abuse and in the Jurt interview of the 6th of February 2013 she discloses being sexually assaulted by Joe on this issue at page 26 of the clinician's report It reports, During the discussion of this particular item, being touched in a way you don't like, Kimberly made several disclosures in relation to being the victim of sexual assault by her maternal uncles, Joe, Bobby, and Dwayne. Kimberly stated that she performed fellatio on Bobby and Dwayne, whilst Dwayne also had vaginal intercourse with her, and that, quote, "...he made me sore because he was too hard." She also disclosed that Duane had, quote, "...touched me and played with my bottom and made me sore." Kimberly stated this behavior occurred frequently. When the clinician asked if that had happened with anyone else, Kimberly replied that her Uncle Joe, quote, "...had sex with me only once and had told her not to tell anyone." Very concerningly, the clinician also reports... Cindy is first observed to be masturbating in around February 2013, approximately seven months after coming into foster care. Cindy is questioned about this behavior and informs her carer that she never used to masturbate when she lived with her mother. Kimberly is observed to be masturbating her younger cousin, Carmen, in the lounge room in the preceding months, commencing approximately December 2012. Carmen confirmed to the carer that Kimberly had been touching her, quote, girl, the word the children use for vagina, and stated that that, quote, this often happens when the girls sit on the lounge. When questioned about this behavior, Kimberly reportedly stated with a smile that she engages in such behavior because, quote, she likes it. The carer felt that she needed to provide constant monitoring In close supervision because of her concerns that Kimberly may initiate sexualized behaviors with her second cousin, Cindy, her aunt, Carmen, or the other non-familial foster children in her care. Cindy's contact with her mother was halved in around February 2013, and accordingly, she only sees her mother fortnightly instead of weekly. Cindy is a child who does not respond well to change in her routine. Allocation of Parental Responsibility The court must not make an order allocating parental responsibility unless it has given particular consideration to the principle of the CARE Act 1998 and is satisfied that any other order would be insufficient to meet the needs of the children. The principle of the CARE Act is... In deciding what action it is necessary to take, whether by legal or administrative process, in order to protect a child or young person from harm, the course to be followed must be the least intrusive intervention in the life of the child or young person and his or her family that is consistent with the paramount concern to protect the child or young person from harm and promote the child's or young person's development. I have given particular consideration to the principle of least intrusive intervention. I am satisfied, however, that any order other than allocation of parental responsibility of each child to the minister until the age of 18 would be insufficient to meet the needs of the child. Aftermath Social media site Facebook has been used as a forum for members of the Colt family to connect and declare their love for one another. Matriarch Betty Colt posted a picture of herself with some of her relatives. A caption on the image reads, Love makes a family. The children were dispatched in small groups and did not see the others for years. Betty has vowed to reunite them all. It will be a daunting task. The family was comprised of 38 adults and children at the time that the offenders were arrested and the children became wards of the state. June Colt will not be able to attend because she died in 2001. The Colt children's age-inappropriate sexual behavior was corrected after a period of counseling and moral readjustment. Nadia and Ruth saw improvement on many levels after they were taken into foster care. They gained weight. They learned how to articulate themselves better. Their hygiene was normalized. They attended a local primary school, which they enjoyed. A magistrate opined that it was necessary that the children's identities be withheld from the public. This would ensure that they could integrate into society successfully, as they would be free of judgment due to the shadow their family name had cast over them. To quote the magistrate, They not only have the obvious emotional scars, but physical ones as well. Being in new schools, having to make friends, and to meet the approval of parents of those children. Later, Betty Colt would complete a quiz on Facebook and proudly displayed the results on her wall. They said, "'You're a fun mom. Your children love you because there is never a dull moment with you around.'" You know how to have fun, and that is something you have taught your children well. It's a funny thing about human monsters. They're almost always in denial. They have done nothing wrong, they feel. They are innocent victims. Try telling that to the cult children. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. This is Morgan Rector. Bye for now.